Thank you. Privileged to be with you. I remember a man introduced me one day and he said, Hendrickson is building my life in three incredible ways. Wood, hay, and straw. So, let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge with uh, dependence and gratitude that except you build a house, we labor in vain to build it. And that because unless you build it, it is truly in vain. And so we ask God, during these hours we're together here at this conference, that you'd build into our lives in a way that would magnify your glory, all because of Jesus. Amen. I suspect, particularly in our culture, that the definition of what is a Christian is as varied as the number of people who are asked the question. Um, Most people view Christianity not as how God defines it, but as how they define it. As though the Bible were some smorgasbord of options that every man goes to and picks and chooses and that becomes his own private version of Christianity. Nothing could be further from the truth. So what I want to do is address what the Bible says regarding what is a Christian. Not what I think. What does God say? Because what I think doesn't mean diddly squat. In doing this, what I want to do is I want to uh, give you kind of the macro. I'm not going to take you to a verse and quote it and then expound it and then take you to another verse and do that. What I want to do is back up and look at life and look at it straight on. And I would suggest to you that if you look at life and you uh, set aside all assumptions, all presuppositions and you take a look at it flat on you come to the conclusion that life has no purpose now Winston talked about purpose last night but the truth of the matter is when you look at reality nothing makes sense Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes notes That God may be just, but you cannot find it in the world that he created. And so, we are called upon to live in a nonsensical, unjust environment. And we look at things and we say, purpose may be found here. And we find that it is wood, hay, and straw. And everywhere we look, we're checkmated. Now, the reason this is so pressing, because again, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, that God has placed eternity in our hearts. I don't know about the rest of the created order, but there's something inside of man that says, I'm not sure what is on the other side of death, but there's got to be something. 
And that becomes one of the most pressing issues in his life. And again, referring back to what Winston said last night. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says that what God does is he systematically strips from us all reason to have a temporal hope so that we can eventually come to our senses and realize that apart from him there is no hope. And I'm an old man and I want to tell you that old age conspires with God in stripping a man of a temporal hope. Now what I want to do is I want to take ideas, throw one out, give you a chance to interact with me, take the next idea until we finally either run out of time or run out of material. So are there any questions or comments or observations you want to make? Because God has placed eternity in our hearts, All people everywhere have acknowledged that this life should be a preparation for whatever is on the other side of the grave. Now all cultures, all people, and all ages have reasoned thusly. And granted, there is in every generation a certain group of skeptics, agnostics, atheists, but if Solomon is correct, that is a, a sham. That is something that they pretend to be so. And the closer a man comes to death, if providence allows him to watch it come at him, the more pressing the question becomes, what is on the other side of the grave? What is eternity like? Now, men have grappled with that question and rested, answered it in a variety of ways. All agree that whatever is out there beyond death, it's got to be better than what we have right now. Anything has got to be an improvement. Even annihilation is an improvement over the status quo. All religions throughout history have believed that there's something beyond the grave and all of them have believed that there are conditions that have to be met in order to properly die and have a hope beyond the grave. Now the Christians call that heaven. It may be nirvana. It can be whatever you want to call it. But all men everywhere have acknowledged that that is the case. Any questions or comments? Okay. Now, all men everywhere have also agreed that man is defiled. And this defilement whatever you want to call it, 
is ubiquitous. Everybody's got the problem. And all religions agree that this defilement has got to be handled if you're going to get ready to die properly. If you're a Buddhist, it's the fourfold path of Buddha. If you believe in reincarnation, the transmigration of the soul, then what you've got to do is you've got to meet certain conditions. And of course, in the Hindu religion, the condition is passivity. You cannot disturb your karma. If you want to improve your lot next time you go through one of these cycles. Eventually, when you get it right, then you blend in with God. For God is in everything and God is everything. And you become one with God in this undefinable monism. Some people argue that you get best prepared for eternity by self-denial and asceticism. Let's head to the monastery. Let's uh, remove from us all forms of this life. For life is intrinsically evil. Other people argue good works. As a matter of fact, it's kind of like the balanced scale. If my good works outweigh my bad works, I get to go to heaven. And if it's the other way around, I've had the schnitz. Now, every man, when he evaluates it, always comes to the conclusion that the good outweighs the bad. Now, yeah, Grant and I may be bad, but there are compensating ingredients that you've got to take into consideration. But everybody agrees that this defilement exists. The philosophers agree. They don't agree as to why it is here. They don't agree as to how we got it. But they all agree that we have it. Now, I feel very uncomfortable talking about philosophy because I've got some genuine philosophers in the audience. But if I remember correctly, Rousseau used to argue that defilement, or whatever you want to call it, exists in mankind. That's obvious. How do you get rid of it? And there are really two basic solutions to the problem, says the philosopher. Isolation, that is, put a man in the middle of the Rocky Mountains 150 years ago, and there's nobody around him, but he didn't, he didn't sin. And the other way is to divide the common good with the common man. But again, let me note with you that though they disagree as to why we have it and what it exactly looks like and how to solve the problem, everybody agrees that we have it. Any questions or comments? What do you define defilement as? The question was, what do you define defilement as? All people have in common 
that they're not what they know they ought to be. Something is wrong. Either because of how people treat them, because we live in an intrinsically unjust world, or because they sense some kind of a need in their own soul. But even if I have talked myself into believing that I am sinless and perfect, a superficial look at you lets me know that I am alone. Any other questions? Has anyone ever in their writings and the philosophers ever decided that they were not defiled? That's an excellent question. And now I am truly out of my element. So I asked Dale, what do you think? No. That was a categorical answer, no. Jack? Uh, recently, there was one um, um, called transactional analysis. I'm okay, you're okay. So they postulated that. Um, it obviously fell in disrepute quickly, but that, that's a recent one. Yeah. Well, that's a little bit like I am. I, uh, the only time I ever made a mistake was the time I thought I had and really didn't. So, yes. John, can I talk you into getting me a uh, glass of water? I should have brought it up and I forgot. Thank you. Any other questions? Comments? Okay. Everybody, everybody believes the truth is absolute. Thank you. Now, I'm not saying to you that truth is absolute. I'm saying to you that you believe that it is absolute. And the way that you know that everybody believes that truth is absolute is everybody judges. Nobody can not judge. And if you have kids, you see it in your children very early. Dad, that's not fair. That is, that there's a standard of right and wrong which is applicable to them and to me and it has been violated. So, everybody judges. Everybody says that there is a norm, a standard that ought to be obeyed. 
And that's what produces injustice. Now again, I'm not arguing with you that truth in fact is absolute. All I'm suggesting is that everybody believes that it is. Now it's precisely right here that men get sideways. Because the battle has always been over who gets to make the rules. Going back to the Garden of Eden, who gets to decide what is good and what is evil? And man has always been adamant in his insistence that he gets to make that decision. That is the essence of autonomy. And that craving, that desire, that urge to define the absolutes was in Adam and Eve before they sinned. It's what caused the fall. All religions of the world, therefore, have in common that they seek to establish some set of parameters that satisfies the question of what is good and what is evil. Now, the Bible calls evil sin. And the Bible is adamant in its insistence that God and God alone gets to define what good and evil looks like. And anybody that wants to disagree with God on the subject, God simply says, it's not open for discussion, go to hell. (laughs) Now note with me, that all men everywhere have agreed, always agreed, that whatever morality looks like, whatever right and wrong looks like, it includes the golden rule. Even the most liberal pundit will jump on the violation of the golden rule like a duck on a June bug. We define the violating of the golden rule with the word hypocrisy. And you may be a wretched sinner but she had better not be hypocritical. Any questions or comments? Okay. If Injustice is found here. If the golden rule is violated, if life is nonsensical, if there is a standard of morality outside of myself, then my hope is that I'll be able to find it beyond the grave because I will not find it here. That means 
that I don't mind if God defines what is good and evil. All I want is to make sure that he agrees with me. And even if I have deceived myself into believing that God sees things from my point of view and he is not defiled but I am then the next question that I have to answer in my mind if I'm thinking clearly is how can I a defiled individual have a relationship with somebody who is not defiled without making the environment to where I go dirty and without God violating his own standards. Now, gentlemen, that is a question that is only answered by the Christian religion. No other religion in the world, of which I am aware, endeavors to ask and answer that question. To put it another way, how can a just and holy God have a relationship with the likes of you and me without violating his justice and making heaven dirty? Now let me illustrate for you. Let's say you have twin sons. Let's say they're 13 years old. And you say to your sons, what I want you to do is I want you to earn during the summer $200 each. And if you earn $200 and set it aside, then we're going to spend one week at Disney World. One son performs. He makes an excess of $200. Piece of cake for him. The second son, lazy, procrastinates. Doesn't earn it. What he does earn, he spends. So at the end of the time, one has it and the other does not. And the son who doesn't have it says to his dad, forgive me. And the dad says, you're forgiven. Come with us. What has his dad taught his sons? You tell me. What lesson do they learn as they walk away from that? There's no accountability and no consequences. And even one thing more important. It doesn't matter. And note with me, my friends, that dad cannot be trusted. He is a liar. He is unjust. He's intrinsically unjust. He did not say what he meant and mean what he said. We cannot trust him from this point on. And that is the question 
that only Christianity endeavors to answer. Now this brings us to the issue of sacrifice. The dictionary defines a sacrifice is the surrender of something of value for something of greater value. My dictionary uses the illustration of a sacrificial bunt in baseball. But what you do is you give up what is of value to you in hope of obtaining something of greater value. So sacrifice becomes very important in life. And it helps identify our hope. The Old Testament sacrificial system was based on this assumption that if I take the first of my fruits and I give them to God, I in fact will prosper. What I returned from get returned from God is greater than what I gave him. Therefore, I am willing to sacrifice because remember, a sacrifice is giving something of value in hope of something of greater value. Now, all Old Testament sacrifices were offered by man for man. Whether it was a sin committed in ignorance or whether it's an endeavor to have God prosper my flocks, I make the offering for my benefit. It is offered by man for man. Are we together? The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, again, is absolutely unique in that it is a sacrifice that is offered by God for God. You benefit from the transaction, but you have absolutely nothing to do with the transaction. It is a sacrifice that takes place within the Godhead. You benefit. But in that sacrifice, the question is answered, how can be God be just in giving you eternal life when you don't deserve it and you know you don't deserve it? Why isn't God like the father who lied to his sons? I remember I was trying to explain this to a guy once and he said to me, he says, oh, you mean Christ took the rap from me, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Not exactly, but yeah, that's the idea. You benefit... But remember, the transaction is between God the Father and God the Son. Any questions or comments? Okay.
next question we have to ask and hopefully answer is what condition or conditions must be met in order for me to cash in on this transaction? How do I benefit from this that took place in the Godhead? What do I have to do? And the Bible says there's only one thing, one and only one thing you must do. Only one condition. And that is you must believe. Now let me remind you of what you already probably know. And that is that the word faith and believe are the same word in the Bible. You've got to have faith. You've got to believe me. To put it another way, you cannot call God a liar and have a relationship with Him. Now, I can tell you something and you say to yourself, I don't believe Him. But if we're going to have a relationship with one another, you can't call me a liar. You smile and nod and say, hmm, I don't think so, hmm. Another thing about me, you've got to remember, is that um, I'm unbelievable. But God is very believable. For example, I've been married to my beloved for a number of years now, and in those years I have trained her carefully not to believe me. Now it's not that she calls me a liar. She just simply says I'm unreliable, that's all. So I come to my wife and I say, sweetheart, where's my jacket? And she says, it's over there in the closet. And I said, honey, I looked for it. It's not there. I Trust me, it's not there. She smiles and opens the closet, gets it and hands it to me. <laughs> now, why that happens, I've never been able to figure out. <laughs> but that it happens to me is more often than I care to admit. So I think about that. I think to myself, yeah, I've trained her. She's got to be skeptical when I tell her something. Because I am very, very fallible. But because God and God alone gets to determine what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, and because He makes the determination... You've got to believe Him when He makes the declaration as to what is good and evil. You've got to believe Him. And if you don't believe Him, remember, He knows the innermost thoughts of your mind or heart. For Him, therefore, it will become a deal breaker. What God has done, therefore, is He has chosen an ingredient that is common to all people. All people agree everywhere that if you're going to have a relationship with somebody, you've got to believe them. So if I said, you know, I really would like to become your friend. And I don't know you, but I'd like to really get to know you. And you say to me, well, Hendrickson, it's not going to happen. You're never going to get to know me then there's not a thing I can do. I know you exist, but I do not know you. I cannot know you unless you reveal yourself to me. 
so when we got married, we came to those beautiful women and we said, you're one of the most incredible people I've ever met in my life and I would like to spend the rest of my life getting to know you. And she says, well then let's get married. And then we spend the rest of our lives trying to plumb the depths of this wonderful creature. But her willingness to allow me to know her is directly related to the degree that I believe her. Now if you think I'm wrong on this, next week you take your wife out on a date. You buy her a lovely meal in a quiet, lovely restaurant and let her pour her heart heart out to you. And then when you're done, look across the table, smile at her and say to her, I don't believe a word you said. (laughs) And I suggest to you, gentlemen, that that will not enhance the relationship. God says, if you're going to have a relationship with each other, you've got to believe me. What? Whatever I say to you, you've got to believe. You cannot pick and choose. So we come back to where we began. Christianity is not a smorgasbord. Where you say, I believe this, but I don't believe that. I think I'll choose this, but I'll reject that. God says, we don't relate to each other. You can know me in the sense that you can know the President of the United States, says God, but you'll never know me in the sense that you'll know your wife. It has not happened. Because I will not reveal myself to people who do not believe me. Any questions or comments? Yes. I'm trying to think of how to phrase the question, but to tie the idea of, and I think we come across this a lot when we're dealing with other religions and cultures, that the two 13-year-old boys, the one who earned the $200, I think he's still looking for an explanation from his, from his father. And maybe, I don't know if you could expand on that in terms of, as Christians, we benefit from the sacrifice God made, you know, to himself. But how do you how do you translate that? Can you flesh that out a little bit for the for the guy who went out and earned the two hundred dollars? Well for the young man who went out and earned the two hundred dollars and found out that it made no difference, whatever else happens between him and his dad, he'll never trust him again. For sure, that'll be the case. Now, the relationship can be established. All is forgiven, forgotten, except the boy will never forget. He can't. The Bible says 
that there's one thing that God cannot do. Now, I think, personally, there's at least two things that God cannot do. One, for example, is I don't believe that God can generate enough revenue to satisfy the U.S. Congress. <laughs> but the Bible limits it. The Bible says there's only one thing that God cannot do. And that is, He cannot deny Himself. He cannot lie. So, if you are going to be forgiven, justice has to be satisfied, else God is a liar. Um, I, I know there's a difference in the two stories, but I'd like to hear it from you, the prodigal son and, and your story. Your yes, yeah. That's a great illustration. By the way, that's all it is. It's a parable. It's an illustration. And like Winston said last night, all illustrations eventually break down. But note a couple of things about the parable. Whether you're edified by these observations, it's up to you. But let me note them with you. Note with me that the father never chased the son. He didn't go looking for him. He waited for him and was eager for his return and welcomed him wholeheartedly. Next, note with me that when the elder son pouted, and said, this is not just. This is not fair, Dad. What did the father say to him? Again? Yes. Yeah. All that I have is yours. So we're not going to redivide the inheritance. He spent his. The restoration of the relationship has nothing to do with the inheritance. And that again was one of the points that Winston was trying to drive home last night. Any other questions or comments? The uh, issue of absolute truth is, uh, and I don't want to get bogged down in semantics, but it seems to me one of the biggest challenges we face is the, the lack of agreement that there's an absolute truth. And unless you're saying that everybody has their own absolute truth. Right. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying, I cannot prove to you that God exists. I can't prove to you that the Bible is the word of God. I cannot prove to you that when you die, you'll meet God in judgment. I cannot prove to you that truth is absolute. But I can prove to you that you believe it is. Okay. 
I, I seem to think that I know or have heard of people who, who I mean, it's sort of the culture of the what is the definition of is is that leads a lot of people to not necessarily think that they have a corner on the truth market and that they're really they think they're enlightened by saying, well, my truth may not be your truth or right, right. Uh, that there is no real absolute truth. So I right. guess I'd, I'm a little uh, struck by that. Yes, good point. You know, I live in the land of the nuts and berries. I'm from California. Now, we have some rather kooky people out there. That's why I live there. But I invite you to go to UC Berkeley or Stanford or any one of these liberal schools, these bastions. And they will tell you that truth is relative. It is not absolute. Furthermore, they will say that there's nothing wrong with being a homosexual or with sex outside of marriage or, 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 or. But they doesn't, that doesn't mean that they don't believe the truth is absolute. They believe it is absolute. As a matter of fact, if you huh, destroy the environment, or you are not politically correct, they'll jump on you with all four. It is not that they believe that truth is relative. What they believe is that they get to define what is good and evil. So you take me any environment you want and you'll find exactly the same thing. That's why I use California as an illustration. Always makes me nervous when Gail asks questions. Who gave you permission to say that? <laughs> uh, Walt, in your illustration of the two children, the father defined a cause and effect. Right? You yeah. do this and you'll get this. But in our, rela in our relationship to God, the preponderance, if not all, of our relational statements are... Uh, not cause and effect, but their correlation. If I do this, then it, if I raise my children correctly, maybe they'll be okay. That's all up there. I've got to trust God, and He gets to define what's good. We stand very little in the cause and effect world with God. Yeah. yeah. No, I understand what you're asking. Now, gentlemen. I very much want to go here with you, but I want you to understand that I did not anticipate the conversation moving in this direction. So, bear with me as we look it over. Because if you think we were technical coming up to this point, cheer up, it's going to get worse. <laughs> Alright? Now, in the Old Testament economy, God's commitment was to an institution. He, in the Old Testament, 
I can find no record of God committing himself eternally to an individual. That does not mean he did not do it. It means that when he made the Old Testament, he decided he was not going to include that. So, the promises that were made to the people in the Old Testament were made to the nation. They were promises given to the nation. And they were not necessarily given to the individual. Now this produced no small amount of consternation on the part of the people. Because, as Gail points out, there was no necessary cause and effect relationship between how obedient an individual was and whether God prospered that individual. So God, when he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, God says, let me tell you who I am. I am the one who makes the deaf and the blind. I am the one who gives leprosy. I am the one who brings all these kinds of conditions to man. Now, when God takes the children of Israel and he brings them into the promised land, the land he had promised their forefathers. In Deuteronomy 28, in essence what he says to them is, if you will obey me, and if you will keep my commandments, and if you will do what I ask you to do, and parenthetically, there is nothing complicated or difficult about them. They're very easy to understand. They're very few in number. A little over 600, that's all. And if you chuckle at that, Take a look at how many laws you've got in your own city, much less the state and the land. Obey them, and what I will do, says God, I'll return you to the Garden of Eden, with the exception of death. You'll still face death, but it will be utopia. Now, that does not mean that in the most optimal conditions, every single individual in the nation becomes the beneficiary of those promises. So, the children of Israel were at Kadesh Barnea. Again, I think we alluded to that last night. The spies went into the promised land. They came back with a majority and minority report. You remember what happened was God said, because of this decision you made, namely, who's going to take care of our wives and our children? you'll wander in the wilderness for the next 40 years. The children of Israel said, we made a mistake. We confess our sins, we're going to go into the promised land. Moses says, it's too late, forget it. They went into the promised land and got defeated. Years later, 40 years later, the children of Israel 
conquered the battle of Jericho. They didn't conquer it. God gave it to them. The next battle was a piece of cake, AI, and they got defeated. Joshua, in unbelief, comes to God and says, what happened? And God says, Israel sinned. When we read further in the account, one man committed one sin, and God rescinded the commitment he made to that generation, that nation. So the question then came, how many sins did the nation have to commit before God said, it's off? And that is a question he never answers. When you look at the Old Testament history, Gail, you'll find that more often than not, the retribution of the sins come upon the children and the grandchildren, not the people who committed the sins. So there's no way the people could get their arms around that. So in the Old Testament, in short, God made temporal promises to a nation that did not necessarily apply to the individual. In the New Testament, God makes eternal promises only to individuals, not to institutions, and says you cannot look for justice and blessing in the temporal. Only a deferred compensation program. Now, there is a direct cause-effect relationship in the eternal. But God says, don't look for it and don't expect it in the temporal. That's why the, um, the young man this morning was talking about our lot in life is tribulation. God says, in the temporal, you cannot expect blessing, you should expect the opposite. And so I humbly suggest for your consideration that it is not just a correlation, it is cause-effect. What you do here on earth appreciably influences what happens to you after you die. I think some of you are about ready to go comatose. I told you it would be technical. Any questions or comments? I'd just like to hear that point again, only because the story of David, where he counts the fighting men, 70,000 Israelites end up dying as a result of that decision. I've often been troubled by that, and I understand what you're saying. And could you make that transition you just kind of went over again from the Old Testament to the people and God's reaction versus the New Testament? Yeah. Let me preface it by the first observation I made, and that is that when you look at the world, you cannot find justice. So you look at that illustration of David numbering the people in 2 Samuel 24. And you say, that's not fair. And David himself says, I'm the one that sinned. 
And that's the point. Now, the New Testament says, not in these exact words, this is a Henriksen paraphrase, nobody dies and meets God in the face and regrets his circumstances here on earth. The only thing he will ever regret in eternity is his own sin and unbelief. Nobody gets into heaven early or into eternity early. He does not delegate our destiny to other people. And when we get there, fairness will not be an issue. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Well, so what you're saying is uh, fairness won't be an issue, but that doesn't mean there there won't be equality. But people won't say, "Darn it, that's not fair." That they, they they won't disagree with what God does. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Trevor, let me remind you of the obvious. There can be no authority without fear. Not in any sphere of life. Not a father with his children, not a husband-wife relationship, not with the government, and certainly not with God. If you don't fear God then he has no hold on your life. Then his commandments and his wishes are nothing more than suggestions to commend themselves to you. Yes? Is there... Is there purpose in God, I think I know the answer, but is there purpose in God creating an environment where we have an eternal, if you look at a flat on, we have an attorney in our heart, yet there is no justice, and it, life seems without purpose. Is that, is that specifically his purpose, to lead, him, lead us with only one option at that point? Because the conclusion is, it makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. yeah. Enter Jesus. Yeah. We go back to the word believe. Everybody believes something. Because everybody knows that they don't trust, excuse me, they cannot predict the future. You cannot be certain about what has not yet transpired. By its very nature, that is the case. Would you not agree? So, again, like Winston said, life is a crapshoot. And where you place your poker chips is where you think you've got the best chance for a return. That's why we call it faith. Faith is commitment without knowing. Everybody's got to walk by faith. 
So you got your poker chips on a square as surely as I do. The question is only, what is it you believe? That's the only question. The pagan, the agnostic, the atheist, he believes something. Are we clear on that? Okay. Now, the God says, if you believe me, you've got to believe everything that I say. You cannot pick and choose. You can't say to your wife, sweetheart, probably about 60% of the time you're telling me the truth, but the other 40% of the time, you're a bold-faced liar and have a relationship with her. Thus, the Bible says, he that says, I know God and keeps not his commandments is a liar. Interesting, that word liar. To lie is a malicious intent to deceive. It's something greater than being mistaken. God says, you've got to believe me. If you don't believe me, as manifested in what I said, then you're calling me a liar. And you can't have no relationship with me. Nothing can be clearer than that in the Bible. Any questions or comments? Gentlemen, believing is always on God's terms. It is never on yours. Now you can make the choice. God says, you don't have to believe. I'm not going to force it on you. If you don't believe, go to hell. If you believe, then believe and don't pretend like you believe when you don't. Don't play games with me. Because I know you better than you know yourself. Now, gentlemen, from a macro perspective, that is a Christian. Any questions or comments? As I always try to say to my audiences, when I'm done with sessions like this, good luck.